Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Of all the unreliable words on the screen, the least reliable are these, based on real-life events. When you say based on, how firmly are they locked into the actual facts? And how often are the said facts, shall we say, helped, sexed up, made to flow more freely, and increasingly often these days, amended to cater to modern tastes? Richard III, I just don't believe someone would be that wicked because of a disability. Doesn't ring true to me. That's your critique of Shakespeare, is it? Doesn't ring true. Of course, the trouble with real-life events is they very rarely fit into a standard appealing story, one that will come out satisfactorily in two hours or so. But still, that's no excuse for deliberately misrepresenting them, surely. I'll have her. But I will not keep her long. But though I killed her husband and her father, the readiest way to make the wench amends is to become her husband and her father, the which will I... Well, don't be ridiculous. People have been fiddling with the facts ever since Shakespeare decided that Richard III played better as a scenery-chomping villain than as a boring, hard-working royal who fell foul of the Tudors. And when Republican France needed a rather more unappealing version of Queen Marie Antoinette, why let the facts get in the way of a good one-liner? And when they went to the Queen to tell her her subject had no bread, do you know what she said? Let them eat cake. That's such nonsense. I would never say that. The fact is, any film set in any historic period or exotic locale is going to fiddle with the available information to make room for a good plot. But at least, until recently, some lip service was paid to the basic facts. He waits for you at York. If you are a man enough to come and face him. Why do you help me? Because of the way you are looking at me now. Where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Well, not always. If you're expecting accurate history lessons from Braveheart, Pearl Harbor or Argo, you've only yourself to blame. But the worst purveyor of alternative facts is Quentin Tarantino. I'm putting together a special team. We're going to be doing one thing and one thing only. Killing Nazis. Sound good? Yes, sir! It's not just that QT upends the truth in his films, it's that he does it with a gleeful postmodern smirk. A wild bunch of Jewish soldiers of fortune terrorising Nazi Germany and then incinerating Hitler with a flamethrower. That's so cool. A movie about the Manson family murder of starlet Sharon Tate, but with a happy ending. Why not? 
I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Well, because then it stops being the story of the Manson murders. It becomes a goofy tale of the gang who couldn't shoot straight, surely. And pessimists may wonder if future dumber generations are going to prefer the Tarantino version of events to the depressing truth. Book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. That's certainly the advantage of pure imagination, of course. The story can pan out however you choose. As Oscar Wilde put it, the good ended happily, the bad unhappily. That's what fiction means. But accuracy or inaccuracy in movies is one thing. After all, you can always Google a story to find out how much, if any of it, is remotely true. Incredible. I don't believe it. Oh, can believe it. What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang, Amadeus, Mozart, Mozart, Mozart. A slightly trickier issue is convincing an audience of something. Sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. So the poor screenwriter and director have to work doubly hard to make us believe it. We have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. Corpse carrying fake documents. The World War II story of a dead soldier carrying totally fictitious secret plans devised by British intelligence was told recently in the film Operation Mincemeat. And the part that was true, all of the above basically, was infinitely harder to swallow than the lightly romantic subplot the filmmakers added later. He would carry a letter from his wife professing her deep love for him. Very good. And he would carry her photograph. My contribution to the mission for a seat at the table. Well, this week, two films based entirely on real life, though one has an easier job than the other. On Netflix, Munich, The Edge of War centres on one of the most well-known moments leading up to World War II. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain waving a piece of paper and predicting peace in our time. It was already fiction before novelist Robert Harris got his hands on it. What if he refuses to sign it? Why should he? These are all statements he's made already. It doesn't mean he's going to stick with them. It's symbolic, Horace. The other tells the story of an almost completely forgotten real-life character, Chevalier Joseph Bologne. Musician, swordsman, composer, dashing dilettante, he was the son of a Caribbean slave in the reign of Louis XVI. Usually I am the most impressive person at these parties, but it seems you have stolen focus. Is that right? I'm afraid so. Chevalier's major problem is how unlikely it is, and yet it doesn't even include some of the most fascinating and factual parts of Boulogne's life. But at least the first movie this week doesn't have to worry about facts. Meg 2 is made up from start to finish. I just hope it goes better than last time. What happened last time? You don't want to know. The original Meg was mostly shot around New Zealand, with Jason Statham taking on a gigantic prehistoric shark, a megalodon. Providing backup were Kiwi star Cliff Curtis, Chinese celebrity Bing Bing Lee, and a cute little Chinese moppet called Sophia Kai. 
Cliff and Sophia return with the Staith, though both New Zealand and Bing Bing Lee were abandoned before Meg to the trench. This is truly a terrible idea. I've been training her since she was a pup. We have a special bond. The trench being the famous Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean anywhere, and the home of the last movie's invading megalodons. For the second film, director Ben Wheatley decides we need an historical recap. Flashback, 65 million years. A caption explains that the world was inhabited by dinosaurs of all shapes and sizes. But the king of them all was... anyone? That's right, Tyrannosaurus, T to his friends, Rex. But was it really? What's that hurtling in from the sea and aiming at our carnivorous friend? It's a big, galumphing mega-shark, rather poorly animated, it has to be said. OK, well, that's all the explanation this story needs, thinks director Wheatley, who's better known for art films like A Field in England, High Rise and Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. Wheatley immediately throws us into the middle of some problems in the Mariana Trench. Jonas, we need your help. We're detecting increased aquatic activity 25,000 feet deep in the trench. Jonas, Jason Statham, is now an eco-warrior taking on ratbags who dump nuclear waste in our oceans. Well, don't worry about that. He's also inherited the late Bing Bing Lee's daughter, Mei Ying, now a stroppy teen, as well as Mei Ying's heroic Uncle Jimmy, whose hobby is training a tame megalodon. Well, that's not important either. Cliff Curtis, tell us what is. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there is trying to make its way to the surface. This is a bad idea. Just a little bit. There have been people, possibly nuclear ratbags, tampering with the trench, and once you start doing that, who knows what you're going to unearth. Jonas and his buddies decide to take a couple of deep-diving mini-subs down into the deeps to find out what's up and who's doing it. No, not you, Mei Ying. I want to dive the trench. No. Why not? Saying it's too dangerous. Too dangerous for you. But, of course, we know that saying no to a stroppy teen is a waste of time in this sort of movie. Meg 2 The Trench is firmly aimed at a family audience, much to Jason Statham's disapproval, I gather. This means not much swearing, but plenty of enthusiastic, if bloodless, violence. And it also means that Mei Ying gets to stow away on the sub. Mei Ying? You've got to be careful. I see that you're angry. But I believe that this is a reasonable and responsible decision. Let's explore. OK, so far so good. Once we get down to 25,000 feet or so, it's anybody's guess what we're likely to find down there. Is it really? Well, no, not really, because we've all been waiting for the moment when we're attacked by bigger and better Megs. Jonas, we've got company. 
That's the biggest Meg I've ever seen. Biggest Meg anyone's ever seen. That's the apex predator. But it turns out there are bad guys on the loose in the trench as well as Megs. They've been mining valuable minerals down there. Minerals they discovered were ripe for the picking. How did they discover that, you may ask? Look out! What's that behind you? Stop asking questions and run for your life. Everybody out of water! Sir! Get back on the beach! Get out of water! Please! Get back on the beach! In fact, whenever I wondered what exactly was going on in terms of any sort of plot, there'd be another attack from giant prehistoric sharks, including Uncle Jimmy's pet one that got away while we weren't watching. Go, go, go! We've never seen this before. They hunted it back. I know, Hart's 80s hit Barracuda seems to be putting it mildly, and you won't be surprised to learn that this noisy pig's breakfast of a movie hasn't exactly proved a favourite with the critics. Even by Jason Statham's usual standards, Meg 2, The Trench, is wildly incoherent. Everybody make it to the station! You can make it! Hit fly! Three massive Megs and who knows what else have escaped the breach. But wait, what's that sound as the final credits roll? It was the sound of spontaneous applause from the audience. And as the lights went up, I could see why. They were mostly kids, delighted that the film's PG rating meant they could enjoy the sight of monstrous sharks attacking Jason Statham. You can relax. This place, magproof. I mean, Jonas was always afraid of this, but I was also thinking... They loved it and couldn't care less and it made no dramatic sense whatsoever. Did it have gigantic sharks? Yes, it did. Did it have a few jokes, including a callback to that cute little doggy from the first Meg? Absolutely. And has it encouraged them to see more, possibly far better movies at a cinema next time? Certainly it has, and for that reason alone, I'm not going to get too snooty about Meg 2 The Trench. While you're watching the film Chevalier, it's easy to dismiss it as a far-fetched bit of fiction, something from the soapy Bridgerton school, an excuse for a more diverse cast to dress up in an all-purpose Hollywood costume drama. Far from it. Not only is the story of Joseph Bologna true, it barely covers the facts. Welcome to Paris, Joseph. Monsieur, I fear this will not be a kind place to such a boy. The boy has talent, but one in particular that is exceptional. Very well. Boulogne was born the son of a white colonial landowner and a slave in Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. The French were apparently rather more liberal than the rest of Europe at the time, and as a now free Frenchman, young Joseph was admitted to a top school in Paris where he excelled in fencing and music. I realised the more I exiled, the less I was alone. Were you always so competitive? 
not only was he a dazzling violinist, he was also a noted composer, the rival, it said, of another former child prodigy, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And Chevalier delights in taking a well-known scene from the film Amadeus and turning it on its head. Here it's Mozart who gets humiliated by an unknown challenger. The show-off who spoiled Mozart's concert. May I play with you, monsieur? Well, I hope this won't be embarrassing for you. Who the hell is that? Chevalier is clearly out to redress the injustice of Boulogne's modern obscurity. In the late 18th century, he was one of the great celebrities of the age. Aside from his astonishing talent, he was young, good-looking and dashing. He moved in the highest social circles. He was even a particular favourite of Marie Antoinette. You are quite a remarkable man, Joseph. I, Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, hereby anoint you... Chevalier. But despite being given the title of Chevalier, the equivalent of a knighthood, there were still limits and rules. He couldn't marry, certainly not outside his race, though apparently, this being France, a blind eye was turned on his many romantic affairs. Perhaps that's why he thought he could get away with flirting with Marie, wife of a bad-tempered nobleman. Any other country, man of your colour would not be wearing such fine clothes. One day... The whole world will know me. And of course the music will be spectacular. Bold. Marie, played by Samara Weaving, is attracted as much by Joseph's musical talent as his striking good looks. She's an amateur singer herself. And of course, one thing leads to another. And who might you be? Well, I am the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Well, congratulations to you and all of your... Many accomplishments, whatever they are. Meanwhile, at the other end of the social spectrum, an ageing diva played by Minnie Driver is furious when Joseph scorns her advances. She stirs up trouble at court, particularly when Joseph announces his ambitions to take over the Paris Opera. You don't belong here. You're a party trick. You're a pet playing the violin, that is all. You know I am the best. The Queen steps in and decides that the only two candidates are Joseph Boulogne and the German Christoph Gluck. She suggests a contest. The two will each write an opera and she'll pick the winner. Joseph calls on the services of Marie to sing in his opera Ernestine, despite Marie's husband forbidding her to do so. You are playing a dangerous game, friend. You forget your place, boy. Break his hands. This world is painful for us, my son. But there is always the choice to fight. A surprising amount of all this is true. Even the part where the cuckolded husband threatens to break the musician's hands and the fortunate, if anticlimactic, outcome that he doesn't actually do it. I suspect that the arrival of Mum and her introduction of Joseph to his musical roots may be slightly less true. Hmm. You've let these rich white people soften you. Uh Uh-uh. Get up. Come with me.
On the plus side, Chevalier looks terrific, particularly star Kelvin Harrison Jr. He's totally convincing, both as a fencer and as a ferocious violin player. He and the rest of the cast certainly do what they can with what they're given. But my reservation is about what they're given. I'm putting on a concert. Let us fund the revolution. We cannot afford to make any more enemies. France is changing. You could be more influential than you know. Leverage it. Apart from regular clunky lines like this, the attitudes in the script remain relentlessly modern day, which is a shame because it's a story that's clearly worth telling. Joseph Boulogne was not only a brilliant musician, he was a hero to the growing anti-slavery movements in both Britain and America. They ask about you out there, you know? The people. They miss your music. Mm. Enough. Enough wallowing. It is pathetic. For all its minor strengths, Chevalier's major failing was leaving too much good stuff only to be included in closing titles. In short, a potentially great story turned into less-than-gripping soap opera, I'm afraid. If you take to the stage, you will be erased. There will be no new France. You cannot topple what has been ordained by God. Not everything is about you people. Which films make it to the cinemas and which ones have to make do with a screening on streaming services like Prime Video and Netflix is a bit of a mystery. I assume it's partly fashion and partly belief that films aimed at an older audience are more likely to pick them up at home. Really good to see you again. What do you want from me? We are the last hope Hitler to stop. Case in point, an old-fashioned Second World War spy thriller showing on Netflix and based on a best-selling novel by Robert Harris called Munich, The Edge of War. It's an indication of how fertile the war years are for movie plots that I don't think I've ever seen one about the events surrounding Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's futile attempts to stop Adolf Hitler with diplomacy. I believe the name Paul von Hartmann is known to you. Yes, sir. We were at Oxford together. Munich is the story of two estranged former friends, Englishman Hugh Leggett, German Paul von Hartmann. They fell out over Hitler. Paul was convinced the Fuhrer wasn't as dangerous as he was painted by his enemies. Five years later, he's drastically changed his mind as Hitler prepares to invade Czechoslovakia. Prime Minister Chamberlain, the best I've seen Jeremy Irons for ages, is adamant that peace must prevail. Men and women of Britain and the Empire, as long as war is not begun, there is always hope. In fact, Chamberlain is taking a delegation to Munich to persuade Hitler not to start another war in Europe. What he doesn't know is the existence of a document containing Hitler's real plans, one that Paul has secretly got hold of and will only pass on to his old mate, Hugh. He has a document in his possession. We'd like you to go to Munich tomorrow and get the document. 
It's the sort of film that generally they don't make anymore, or at least not for cinemas. But on Netflix, it benefits from a solid story from Harris, a decent script from the National Theatre's Ben Power, and good bilingual direction from the German Christian Schwockau, who cut his English-language teeth on several episodes of The Crown. be an act of espionage on foreign soil. The cast is pretty good too, as well as Jeremy Irons. It features 1917's George Mackay as Hugh and a trio of terrific young German actors. Janis Niewona as Paul, a touching bit from Berlin Babylon star Lift Lisa Fries and Sandra Hüller, so good in last week's Anatomy of a Fall. Hitler is lying when he claims to want peace. People will suffer. That document is the proof. The story follows Paul getting the document to Hugh under the nose of the Gestapo and then Hugh attempting to get it to Chamberlain. Though getting the willfully obtuse Prime Minister to read it is another matter. Yes, I wanted to have a private meeting with him, man to man, no officials. He invited me to his apartment. What? No officials? Not even you, Horace. Oh, for God's sake, you can't go and see Hitler entirely on your own. Can and will. Gentlemen, we must rise to the level of events. Of course, with the benefit of all these years of hindsight, we've become used to the idea that Chamberlain was one of history's great dupes. The hat, the umbrella, the deluded cry of peace in our time as he waves Hitler's worthless affidavit. It's hard to imagine anyone believing a word of it. Last night's agreement only settles a tiny dispute. There will be others. And I want him to publicly commit himself to peace. But at the time, Chamberlain's mission to Munich was seen as a diplomatic triumph. Such was the dread of a repeat of the recent Great War. And it's to the credit of this Anglo-German production that it manages to capture that era so effectively. What happened to you? One of the great things a halfway decent historical drama can do is put us in the shoes of people who didn't know what was coming. The performance of Ulrich Matters says Hitler is rather more psychotic than usual. Matters was a better fit playing Goebbels opposite Bruno Ganser's Hitler in Downfall, but his scenes opposite Jeremy Irons are still chilling. They'd kill you for even thinking about it. Come, say that. Munich, The Edge of War is a better film than Straight to Netflix might suggest. It's always reassuring in an era of mindless monster movies that a film that tries to include the truth somewhere in its mission statement can still get made now and again though we may have to wait until the actors' and writers' strike gets settled, hopefully sooner rather than later. And in that spirit of peace in our time, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.